Good morning to everyone. Let's continue to worship together by turning in God's Word to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. And as you are turning there, I want you to use your imagination and imagine, uh, along with me, that it is the first century and you live in a city in a region known as Galatia. So what is modern-day Turkey, south-central Turkey, uh, a region 2,000 years ago known as Galatia, and there you are, alive and well, living in a city. You are a Gentile, meaning you are not a Jew. You are a Roman citizen, and the city in which you live is filled with idols, shrines, and temples. You've never known anything different. All is normal insofar as you are concerned. You lead your family, daily you lead your family, in worshiping your household idols. Uh, you sacrifice to these idols, you make offerings to these idols, and it's an exchange. In return, you expect from your household gods uh, you expect that they will bless you in terms of fertility, uh, productivity, protection, preservation. Uh, you join the other members of your guild where you are a member, the tradesmen in your guild, and you gather together to conduct business. And as you conduct business, you make offerings, sacrifices to your patron God, a God whom you expect to bless your work, your labors, prosper you, reward you, and bring financial blessing. You gather in the city, at the very center of the city, the market square, with your fellow citizens to participate in festivals in honor of the gods. And again, it is an exchange. It is a trade on your part as citizens of the city. You are making offerings, libations. And the expectation is what? That the gods in return will protect the city, protect from plague, protect from foreign armies, bless and prosper the inhabitants of the city or town, whatever the case may be. You know of some Jews in your city who don't engage in any of these things. They have their own religion. They read a holy book. They refer to it at times as the Torah. And they follow their own peculiar rules and rituals. One day, a man named Paul uh, visits your city. He preaches in the local synagogue and in the market square. There is nothing particularly noteworthy about him. He is not very charismatic, nor is he trained in rhetoric. To make matters worse, he is clearly unwell. A specimen of humanity, he is not. He is frail, and he is weak, and he is obviously ill. But out of curiosity, you go to hear him preach. And as he preaches, you hear him proclaim. You hear him say that God has made him a light to the Gentiles, that he may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, that's interesting. He has your attention. But this fellow 
Paul has the audacity to call you a sinner. Not only does he has the audacity to call you a sinner in vague terms, he actually starts to define your sins and name them one by one. Not only that, he calls the religion in which you have been immersed now for 30, 40 years, idolatry is what he calls it. And he begins to speak of this one true living God. And he explains, he warns of this God's coming judgment. And he explains how Christ, this individual who is God in the flesh, the, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, how this individual actually bore God's judgment on behalf of sinners such as you. And he announces that God forgives those who believe in Christ. Well, the Spirit of God is working in your heart. You did not see this coming. You went there just out of curiosity. Everybody else is sort of going to find out what's going on. But you're convicted of your sin. You're under terrible conviction. Uh, you know you're right. I am a sinner. And this idolatry, it doesn't make any sense. And you're convinced of what you have suppressed for so long. There is but one true living God. And he is the creator of all things. And I am ultimately accountable to him. And he is going to judge me. And if I stand before him as I am, I am in trouble. Oh, but there is hope. And this hope resides in this individual, Jesus Christ. And having been convicted of your sin and convinced of the truth, you put your faith, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you turn from your sin. You turn from your idolatry to worship God. You're baptized in water. It is an unbelievable season of blessing. Many of your family members, many of your friends, many of your neighbors, others unknown to you, they're also converted. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gets you all together, gathers you all together, and he organizes you in what he calls a church. Never heard of it before, but that's fine. We are now a church. After a short time, Paul leaves the city to preach in another city. Several months pass. One Sunday morning, you gather with your fellow believers to worship. There are some new men present in the meeting. They've never been there before. They're Jews. That's not surprising in and of itself because many of the first converts were also Jews, not just Gentiles, but Jews who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is surprising is that these men are agitated, clearly uncomfortable. What is even more surprising, if not downright shocking, is that these men refuse to eat with you because they say you are unclean. You're unclean. You're shocked. You're scandalized. You object. That isn't what Paul taught us. Paul told us that the wall of separation had been torn down. Paul made it clear to us that there is now neither Jew nor Gentile in the body of Christ that all of that old covenant and rituals and ceremonies and everything that it was to be Jewish, it's all gone, it's all passed away, and now we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't get it. And you press them a little bit. But these men inform you and assure you, along with everyone else, that you have been misled. Apparently, Paul isn't a real apostle. He's an apostle, sort of a half-apostle, semi-apostle, but not a real apostle. Not only that, Paul doesn't preach the full gospel. 
they inform you that God made a covenant with Abraham and that only the physical descendants of Abraham's son, Isaac, only the physical descendants of Abraham's son, Isaac, are the beneficiaries of that covenant. They explain that God made another covenant with Moses and it is binding upon all of God's people. It shows how they're to live. It shows how they are to acquire eternal life. They tell you that in addition to believing in Christ, you must live under the Mosaic Covenant. And until you do, they can't have anything to do with you. Doubt creeps in. You're wondering if there might be something to what they're saying. The discussion goes on for some time. Some of the members of the church begin to conform to some of the requirements of the law but you're still on the fence. You don't know which way to go. It's just this haze in which you find yourself now, this absolute confusion. Then, to everyone's surprise, a letter arrives from Paul to the churches of Galatia. And there you are on a Sunday morning uh, with all of these professing believers. They were formerly Jews and Gentiles. And now with this new crowd who are basically telling you, you must become a Jew or at least live under the law. And one of the elders stands up and reads this letter to the churches of Galatia. Well, talk about awkward. Talk about awkward. Paul is on a mission. And having heard the letter publicly read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 6, two things stand out. You were wondering when I was going to get to this. There it is. Two things have grabbed your attention. Paul has certainly done two things in this letter. He has defended the authority of his mission. He is an apostle. Just as Peter, James, John, any of the others, he is an apostle. Commissioned, appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and therefore an authoritative representative of the risen Christ. Not only that, Paul defends the accuracy of his message. No, he does teach the full gospel. He teaches exactly what the other apostles teach. The inference is what? That these newcomers, they are the ones who have deviated from the gospel. They are the ones who have abandoned the truth. Next slide, Teresa. And here is the content of the letter then. As you've heard it read publicly, and as you have processed everything that has been said, yes, okay, there was this tremendous caution at the outset, this warning. There are problems in those churches. The problem is simply this. There are now some who are teaching a different gospel. It's not really a different gospel. It's not a gospel at all. And what they are teaching you is this, that in order to be justified, in order to have a right standing with God, Yes, okay, believe in the Lord Jesus, no problem. He's the Christ, he's the Messiah. But to be really saved and sanctified and spiritual, you must now live under the Mosaic Covenant. And Paul attacks relentlessly that proposition. And there are four major sections. The gospel revealed, the gospel explained, the gospel defended, the gospel applied, and then he repeats the caution right at the end. As we've made our way through this series, we find ourselves now in that third section, the gospel defended. The next slide, Teresa. And in that section, Paul basically makes four arguments. There they are. And where are we? We've arrived at 
the fourth argument. And so you have the book of Galatians there open on your lap, right? You found chapter 4. You're with me? Look now at verse 21. Here's the fourth argument. Give them 30 seconds, Teresa, then you can take that slide away. We're finished with it. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, listen very carefully. 24th verse. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, there's more here than meets the eye. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. That is shocking, for she is in slavery with her children. Oh, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Many agree that these are the most difficult verses in the epistle. I'm not totally convinced. I will grant that they are among some of the most difficult in the epistle. But we're up for it today, aren't we? You're with me? We're all wide awake, bright and bushy-tailed, or whatever the expression is. We can understand this. There is nothing too complex here for us. We can get our minds around it. We can comprehend the Word of God, and we can track Paul's argument from start to finish. And here's how we're going to do it. If you don't have the sermon notes, you might want to open to them right now. You will find four points. One, two, three, four, with four blanks. That's all I'm going to do. Give, I'm just going to give you four points and just explain each briefly. And with these four, you have the text. You have Paul's argument. Here's the first word corresponding to the first blank. Introduction. Verse 21. That's all you've got. An introduction. Tell me. Tell me. Who's he addressing? You who desire to be under the law. And so in other words, you who want to be back under the Mosaic Covenant. You who want to be circumcised. You who want to observe all the feasts and festivals. You who want to observe all the dietary laws. You Gentiles who now want to start living like Jews. And you Jews who are insisting that Gentiles now conform to that old covenant. Tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? 
It gets tricky because Paul uses the word law in multiple ways. In the first instance, he's clearly referring to the Mosaic Covenant. In the second instance, he's simply referring to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. How do we know that? Because he immediately proceeds to make reference to what? Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. So you want to be under the law, Mosaic Covenant? My friend, you don't understand what the law actually teaches about the law. You don't understand what the Old Testament, the Pentateuch in particular, teaches about the Mosaic Covenant. And he is going to reference Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. If I've lost anyone at this point, it's your fault. That was not complicated. That was not too difficult. That's just an introduction. Second heading, an illustration. So he actually now goes back into the law, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis in particular, and he simply makes four points. Are you ready? It's not tricky. Point number one, there are two sons. They're not named in Galatians, but we know who they are as soon as we go back and we read Genesis 16 and 21. Their names are Ishmael and Isaac. It's point number one. This is easy. Point number two. They have different mothers. Ishmael, it's right there in verse 22, was born of a slave woman. We know her name, Hagar. Isaac was born of a free woman. We know her name, Sarah. So far, so good. Third point, they have different births. So two sons, Ishmael, Isaac, that's the first point. Second point, they have different mothers. Fair enough. Hagar, a slave woman. Sarah, a free woman. They have different births. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. We read in verse 23, Isaac was born through or according to the promise. And so we go back and we read Genesis 16. We discover what? That God made a promise to Abraham. Uh, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And he promised him a son, a son through whom that promise would eventually be fulfilled. Uh, what was the problem? Abraham and Sarah were already old. They were already well past childbearing age. In other words, the promise would be fulfilled how? By God's power and by God's grace. What did Abraham decide to do? He decided to take Hagar, father a son with Hagar, and then try to convince God, well, can't he, Ishmael, be the fulfillment of the promise? In other words, Ishmael and that son, which was the fruit of his relationship with Hagar, was what? It was according to the flesh. It was human effort. Can't I achieve this promise by my own effort? Can't I achieve this promise, this promised salvation and blessing by my own means, my own wisdom, my own cunning? No, you cannot. It will be fulfilled by promise. I will accomplish it when I please. And it will be a manifestation of my grace and of my power. So two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, two births, according to the flesh, human effort, and according to the promise, divine grace. Fourth point we must get, verse 24, and here Paul drives it home. The women represent two covenants. That's it. The women represent two covenants. Hagar is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. She is, verse 25, she is Sinai, where that covenant was made. She represents those who believe that salvation rests on human effort. 
and all of her offspring, therefore, are just like her. They are slaves. They are slaves. Sarah is the new covenant, 26th verse. She is Zion. She represents those who believe that salvation rests on divine grace. Her children are free. There's the illustration. Third heading, he backs it up with an Old Testament quotation. This time he goes to the book of Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1. It is written, 27th verse, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What is the historical context? Israel is away in captivity. And therefore, the nation of Israel is like a barren woman whose children have been lost. But God promises to return her to the land where she will prosper and multiply. Historically, there was a temporal fulfillment after the exile. A remnant did return, but evidently the prophets and the Spirit of God himself had something of far greater consequence in view because Paul now has the audacity to apply that prophecy to whom? The salvation of the Gentiles. That with the going forth of the gospel, the return from exile is fulfilled. And now the fourth heading, his application. Beginning in verse 28 through to verse 31. We're almost there. We've almost made it through the text getting our minds around it, this is the fourth final point heading, application. Notice four things in verses 28 through 31. The first is this. This is Paul's application of this illustration. Number one, the believing Gentiles and believing Jews as well, they are like Isaac. They correspond to Isaac. Verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Verse 31, So, brothers, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. Their mother is Sarah. They are children of the promise, and they are free. Second point we need to get is this. The implication is what? The unbelieving Jews are like whom? Ishmael. That's his point. It's the unbelieving Jews who are like Ishmael. Their mother is Hagar. They are children of the flesh. And they are enslaved. The third point is this. It comes out of verse 29. Just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, we read of that back in Genesis 21, so too the unbelieving Jews persecute the believing Gentiles. The fourth point comes out of the 30th verse. Just like Ishmael was cast out, so too the unbelieving Jews will be cast out. Verse 30 is, I, I'm, I'm grasping for a word weighty enough to convey what I want to say. And all I can come up with is it's important. That just falls so far short. It's really important. Really, really important. There you go. 30th verse. But what does the scripture say? It's a citation from Genesis 21.10. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, please understand the context. This was one of the verses. This was one of the key verses 
that Jews used to justify the manner in which they absolutely despised the Gentiles. As far as they were concerned, all Gentiles were their, their Ishmaelites, not necessarily genetically descended from Ishmael, but in terms of their status and standing before God, Ishmaelites. We alone are the descendants of Isaac. We alone are the beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant and promise. We alone are the recipients of the Mosaic covenant. We alone are the people of God. And anyone outside of us, well, they will ultimately be what? Cast out. And what does Paul do with the text? He actually says the text doesn't mean what you think it means. And you've actually misunderstood who... Isaac is and who Ishmael is. Isaac, those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Those who are looking to God alone for salvation on the basis of his grace without any question regarding their own merit. Ishmael, who's Ishmael? Ishmael represents those who want to fulfill the promise according to the flesh by their own effort. It's Sinai. It's the Mosaic Covenant. It's you, because you refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus. You hide behind your ethnicity. You think simply because you're Jewish, a physical descendant of Isaac, that you are part of God's people and therefore the recipients of his blessing. No, my friend, here, 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 I'm about to rock your world. You are Ishmael, is what he says to them. I mean, just flash back with me now to the first century. And there you are sitting in that church. And this letter is being read. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that that elder or whomever, as he stood and read this letter, that he was able to get all the way through it. I just, I just cannot believe that he was able to get all the way through it before people started throwing rocks at him. Before people started howling at him. Before people started pointing their finger, wagging their finger, just browbeating him and demanding that he be quiet. This is absolutely revolutionary. And it stood on its head everything that these Jews believed. And Paul makes it clear, therefore, in this fourth argument, his defense of the gospel. No, my friends, you, you, have, you have misunderstood. You want to be under the law? My friend, you don't understand what the law says. No, the children of Isaac, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Are you in the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you resting upon divine grace? Oh, you, my Jewish brothers, yes, ethnic brothers, that's fine. You're still resting in your circumcision, all those sacrifices, and now you're telling these Gentile Christians that they have to do the same thing. Oh, my friend, you're still slaves. You're slaves. And you correspond to Hagar and to Hagar's son, Ishmael. I don't doubt there you were in the first century. You're, you were sincerely a believer. But as this epistle was read, and as these arguments unfold, just like waves gently beating against the shore, wave after wave after wave, as this epistle is read, oh, the peace that must have overwhelmed you. Well, I thought that's what Paul had said when he was here. I thought that's what he had told us. 
I, 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 you know, I didn't think I was confusing things or misunderstood. And yes, he said that wall of separation has been torn down. There is now neither Jew nor Gentile. We are the people of God. We are the beneficiaries, the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. We are the sons of Abraham. We are heirs because we are the sons of Abraham. And then these guys, well, they're Jews. I thought they knew what they were talking about. Oh, such confusion. Oh, but how this must have brought such peace and reestablished their confidence, your confidence as you're living there back in the first century in the gospel. That justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, obviously, we're not in the first century. Where are we? 21st century, right? 2,000 years removed from the writing of this epistle, and this little church gathered somewhere in some city in Galatia. How is this of any use to me? Here I am this morning wanting to worship, wanting to hear from the Lord. How is this possibly relevant to me? Four questions I'm going to ask of you. Now, at the outset, not all of these questions will apply to you, but I am certain, I am convinced that if you listen closely, you listen carefully, at least one, probably two, maybe even in some cases three. If all four apply, come see me afterwards. I would find that very interesting, all right? But one of these questions is going to hit us where we are this morning, and we'll see the relevance and the importance of this passage. Here's question number one, the starting point. Are you, my friend, resting in God's grace? There you go. Are you resting in God's grace? That is the great truth set up before us. He has done it throughout the epistle from beginning to end. And here he does it by way of this allegory or illustration. You have Hagar, you have Sarah, you have Ishmael, you have Isaac. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. That is by human effort, unacceptable in the sight of God. Isaac born according to the promise, acceptable in the sight of God. It is an illustration of the gospel, how we are saved. Do you really think you are saved by your human effort? Do you really, really think there is something meritorious about you? Do you really think something has caught God's eye, and on the basis of that, he is favorably disposed towards you? Uh, my message to you, very straightforward this day, is you are deceiving yourself. Salvation is by grace alone. The promise is fulfilled by the power of God and by the grace of God as we fix our faith in the Lord Jesus. Christ lived the life we were required to live, but failed to do. Christ died the death. We were condemned to die. Therefore, God is satisfied with those who rest in Christ. We sing it here quite often. My memory is going. I had to pen it out here to make sure I didn't forget. Jot this down. If this is where you're living right now, this question is of relevance to you. Jot these words down, and I pray the Spirit of God grants understanding. Listen closely. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. Because God the just is satisfied. 
to look on Christ and pardon me? There's the question. Are you, my friend, this moment resting in God's grace as the only hope, the only basis, the only foundation for salvation? If not, my admonition to you, this is the day of salvation. You are to believe. Christ himself commands it. You are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for peace of conscience, and for the hope of eternal life. Second question is this. Are you trying to turn back the clock? Are you trying to turn back the clock? Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It is entirely possible this is going to sail over everyone's head and not land anywhere. It's possible. I doubt it, however. I'm convinced there might be one here, two here, a handful here who need to hear this. Not because you're in any great danger of falling into what I'm about to describe, but perhaps because there is still some nagging confusion regarding what I am about to describe. Okay? Are you trying to turn back the clock? Every summer, June, in Dallas, the Hebrew Roots Network gets together. It's a big deal. One of the major hotels, they sell it out every June or July and have this big conference, this big convention. The Hebrew Roots Network. It consists of groups such as Wild Branch Ministries, Lion and Lamb Ministries, Restoration of Torah Ministries, and on and on and on it goes. It's a movement, simply put, of Torah law-observing Gentiles. They keep kosher. They observe the Sabbath and Jewish holidays. They don't celebrate Christmas or Easter, or at least they play it down if they do. They do celebrate Passover and uh, Feast of Tabernacles. They don't, uh, Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, I think it is called. They learn Hebrew. They travel as much as possible as they can to Israel, making as many pilgrimages as possible. They use the word Hashem, Hashem, uh, for God. Hashem simply means the name. Hashem. And so you will hear that frequently in those circles, perhaps. If you watch, is it Daystar? You'll sometimes, I mean, what a confusion that, that thing, station is. But anyway, I will watch it sometimes. Uh, I'm not sure why, but I'll watch it sometimes. And you will, see, uh, you will see some of these proponents there and speaking in English. And then all of a sudden you'll get the sort of the exclamation, Baruch Hashem. Right? Blessed be God. It'll just be sort of scattered throughout their, their language. Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. Uh, praise be to God or blessed be, blessed be God. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, although they've redefined what the Messiah is and does. But they refer to him, of course, as Yeshua. They don't claim to be Christians. Some do. Most of them don't claim, don't, aren't that comfortable with that tag. They don't display crosses or other Christian symbols, but they do wear stars of David and post mezuzahs, little parchments of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, on their doors. Their central belief is that the Torah is still binding and that the New Testament is an extension of the Torah. They want to observe the Torah the way they think Yeshua did. Apply to anyone? Don't raise your hand. But, but you, you may, you, that, that, that may be something you're, you're, uh, the world you live in or you know someone who lives in that world or something you are confused about. Is verse 21 is for you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You who desire to be under the law, 
do you not listen to the law? Do we not understand God's plan of redemption? History. Do you want it in 30 seconds? History. All we really need to understand, well, there's a little more about history. You have creation, you have fall, you have a promise. Those are God's eternal decrees right there. Creation, fall, promise. The promise is in Genesis 3.15. It concerns whom? The seed, the descendant of the woman. It's the promise of salvation. God decides to develop the promise in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 21, and promises what? The seed, the son of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He decides to develop it even further with David, his son, your descendant, your son, an eternal kingdom, an eternal reign. And so we have the Old Testament. It is a period of preparation. It is just simply a period of promise, anticipation. And in the middle of that, God makes a covenant with the Israelites, makes a covenant with Moses. It is a temporary covenant. It serves a purpose, a temporary purpose. What is the purpose? It is to make ready for the coming of the Messiah. It is, it is, it is designed to drive people to look to the coming promise as their hope of salvation. And all of the sacrifices and festivals and dietary laws and everything are designed to basically teach two things. You are a sinner and you stand in need of a blood sacrifice to atone for your sin. Look to the coming Savior, the promised Messiah, the promised Redeemer. Praise God, the Redeemer has come. And Matthew makes it clear, the outset of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the genealogy of the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's here. We've therefore moved from the age of promise to the age of fulfillment. We're no longer in the age of shadows. We now live in the age of substance. You who now want to go back and live under what was a temporary covenant for a very specific historical context, you want to do that, well, do you not listen to the law? And so maybe one of one of you needs to hear that this morning. Understanding redemption, the history of redemption, God's unfolding plan of salvation, and understand this. We no longer live in the shadows. Don't go back and live there. We live in the age of fulfillment. We're no longer in the age of promise. We are now in the age of realization, fullness, Christ himself has come. Here's the third question quickly. Are you looking at the wrong thing? Are you looking at the wrong thing? It emerges out of verse 29. Just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now that the real descendants of Ishmael, the unbelieving Jews, they are now persecuting and harassing the, the sons of Isaac. Believing Gentiles and believing Jews as well, but there's neither Jew nor Gentile now in the body of Christ, but they are harassing them. They are persecuting them, just like Ishmael did toward Isaac of old. The question is this, why? Why would someone, why would someone who is trying to obtain salvation through human effort persecute someone who realizes that salvation is the result of, flows from divine grace? Well, you see, the individual who is convinced that salvation is contingent upon human effort cannot stomach the person who is convinced, realizes, knows it is all of grace. Why? 
Because this individual has set up idols in his life. This individual has set up idols in her life, and he or she has convinced themselves that God's favor, God's grace, salvation, is ultimately contingent upon what I do, my performance, human effort. You disagree with me? You don't bow down to my idol? You don't reinforce me in my delusion? You therefore become the object of my enmity. Clear enough? There's an application here even for us as believers, isn't there? Because even as believers, and I think I said this maybe last Sunday or a couple of Sundays ago, even as believers daily we are seeking to put to death what? That little legalist who still lives inside us and still tells us occasionally, perhaps daily, you know, when it's all said and done, God's esteem of you or favor toward you or love for you is contingent upon your performance. It does rest upon human effort. If as Christians we aren't mortifying that, if as Christians we succumb periodically to that, do you know what it means? It means that our self-image will not be based on the doctrine of justification by grace alone. It means our self-image will rest on those things that we have identified as being the difference makers when it comes to the reason why God is favorably disposed toward me. And those who differ from me, well, they will become the object of my hostility. Richard Lovelace, he describes it as follows. Those who are unsure, and he's speaking of Christians, those who are unsure that God accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are radically insecure people. They are radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their rightness and defensive criticism of others. Envy, jealousy, and other sins grow out of their insecurity. My friend, are you looking at the wrong thing? As a, I'm even speaking to Christians. Do you need to reorient yourself a little bit this day? Let me ask you a few questions. Are you devastated, devastated, when snubbed, criticized, or overlooked? Answer truthfully. Got the answer? Why? Why? Are you crushed when things don't go your way? Why? Are you constantly critical of others? Glass is always half empty. Why? Do you require people for acceptance? Do you require people to accept them to conform to your expectations, participate in your causes, and champion your convictions? If you've answered yes, even half a yes, a maybe to any of those, the maybe means yes and you know it, uh, here's why. Can you stomach the reason why? I might only only be speaking to one or two, but pastorally you need to hear this, the one or two or ten or twelve or whatever many to be. Do you want to know why? It's because you're self-righteous. It's because you're self-righteous. If your answer to any of those questions is yes, it is because you're still struggling with self-righteousness and there is still a little legalist alive and well somewhere in there and you need to root him out. The only, only reason God looks favorably upon Christians, those in Christ, is what? 
because I just said it. They are in Christ. There is nothing about us, nothing meritorious, and nothing you could do in a million years to earn one iota, one fraction of favor from God. Christ has done it all. And we rest in Christ. Are you looking at the wrong thing or the right thing? Fourth question, final question is this as we wrap up. Are you enjoying the full benefits of citizenship? Are you enjoying the full benefits of citizenship? Well, what are they? Look at the 26th verse. Oh, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Look at the 28th verse. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Look at the 31st verse. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We are children of the free woman. We are children of promise. We are heirs of God. And we live in the age of fulfillment. Zion itself has already dawned upon this present age. And we are members of Zion, participants in that coming long-expected glory. I was reflecting on this some weeks ago and came to memory. I'd forgotten all about it. A few words from William Cooper. And again, I penned them out to make sure I get them right. And this may apply to you. Are you enjoying the full benefits of citizenship? Cooper writes, where is the blessedness I knew when first I sought the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memories still. But they have left an aching void the world could never fill. That might resonate with you. There was a season of blessedness it might be a long time ago. It might not be that long ago. And it has left an aching void. That might be you this morning. And my admonition and my word of encouragement to you is very simple. Again, it's by way of a question. Are you enjoying the full benefits of citizenship? Do you understand what it means to be in Christ? Do we understand what it means to be an heir of God, co-heir with Christ, numbered among the people of God? Again, if that's you, I encourage you. I admonish you. This afternoon, there's no need for the football game, friend. You've got more serious business to take care of. And it's with the Lord. And it's getting right with the Lord. And it's reviewing these things until they resonate with you in the heart. And what has perhaps been gone for days or weeks or months, dare I say years, is it possible? In the case of some, I fear it is. That they may come back like a tidal wave. And oh, the refreshing and the season of blessing. As again, the Spirit brings home to your mind and your heart what it means to be numbered among the people of God. Our Heavenly Father, give us wisdom in these things. We pray that by your Spirit they may not fall upon deaf ears or upon hard hearts this day, but in accordance with the need of each one gathered here, that they may fall powerfully and effectually and bear much fruit for the furtherance of your kingdom and the glory of your name. May Christ be exalted in our midst, we pray. 
In his name we seek it from you. Amen.